Kia ora and welcome to my daily podcast. I'm Bernard Hickey and this is a podcast for the Kaka on Thursday, December the 16th, where today I wanted to look in depth at the government's accounts and its latest forecast that has come out today. In particular, uh, the apparently good news that the budget will be back in surplus, in fact, next financial year, 2022-23. And that the government now doesn't need to borrow quite so much. In fact, it reduced its borrowing requirements by $41 billion over the next four years. Why? Well, uh, the economy is growing a bit faster than it expected back in May when it came out with the last version of the budget. Remember, there's the full budget in May, and then in mid-December, the government comes out with a half-yearly update. It's called the HIEFU, Half-Yearly Economic and Fiscal Update. And also there's a thing called the Budget Policy Statement that comes out as well, in which the Finance Minister, Grant Robertson, is supposed to give us all a clear idea on what the government's views are on how to spend the money and tax the money over the next two to three years. And this is a big set piece. Uh, for me, um, I have about six Olympics every year, maybe eight actually. There's four monetary policy statements, two budget policy statements, and two financial stability reports. Uh, eight big events for me. And so this is one of them. <laughs> That's why I've spent quite a bit of time today writing up my um, analysis of these reports, what it says about not just the government, but also the economy, and um, longer term, how we're dealing, or not dealing, with the challenges we've got in front of us. In fact, emergencies we've got in front of us, both climate emergency and housing emergency. So, uh, good-looking set of numbers. Everyone seems pretty happy. And uh, uh, surely, um, you know, not borrowing quite so much sounds good. And uh, when you've got a government making plenty of tax revenues, that in theory is good. And it certainly is. So one of the reasons uh, the government is looking at, at reducing the amount of debt that it has, or reducing its plans to, to borrow money, is because the economy has grown faster, but mostly because the, there's plenty of inflation. Now, inflation matters because when you've got prices rising more than 5% per year, the nominal size of the economy is bigger. Now, that matters for a government because, in a way, it taxes the nominal economy. So when people spend more in dollar terms because there's been inflation, the GST revenues come in hand over fist. Same with PAYE. We've got record low unemployment, uh, record high employment, Lots of people earning lots of money for lots of hours worked, and they pay PAYE, and that's uh, helping to bolster the coffers. Also, interest rates are a little bit higher than expected, and that means the withholding taxes on term deposits are higher. In total, there's about an extra $54 billion in revenue that the government's discovered from its uh, latest forecasts. So things have improved that much, or inflation has risen that much. It also means that a lot of people who were uh, earning uh, a certain amount that meant they weren't in the highest tax brackets, they are shifting up into the higher tax brackets. It's called fiscal drag. It's one of the, um, the bad things about inflation. Uh, if you are a taxpayer, if you're a government, it's one of the good things about inflation. 
So, uh, lots of money f- f- piling into the government's coffers. Actually, the IRD's new computer system is helping. Um, it's very, very efficient now at sucking in those dollars. So, um, the government's looking a bit healthier. Uh, and uh, you'd, you'd wonder, okay, well, what do you do with this extra money? Because there's a few things you could do with it. Uh, you could pay back the debt. You could invest it in infrastructure and in various measures to improve well-being. Or you could um, be more aggressive in addressing climate change issues to reduce carbon emissions and other emissions. Lots of things you could do with it. So I asked that question of Grant Robertson. Why uh, choose to use this windfall of $54 billion or so to repay debt? Couldn't you have used that money to you know, um, build a lot of houses or uh, do lots of things to you know, uh, uh, reduce climate emissions, uh, build railways, all those sorts of things? And he said that he wanted to strike a balance between debt reduction and doing other things. And he said that the government was doing a lot of capital investment. And on the face of it, that looks true. But when you look at the decisions they made in this half-yearly budget, there is some increased spending on operational spending. Uh, There was a $6 billion operating allowance put through for next year, mostly to fund the new Health New Zealand uh, uh, health system, which has obviously been combined from all the DHBs, and to create the Māori Health Authority. There's also been a bit of um, follow-on uh, spending coming up because of COVID, obviously lots of, lots of money on vaccines and the likes. But when you have a look at it, most of that windfall from the economy is not being spent, and it's not being spent on capital either. So... Um, Uh, Grant Robertson tried to say that there's lots of money being spent on capital. The numbers look big, uh, but when you actually look at the new things they've done, there is going to be an extra $4 billion spent on capital over the next four years from this budget. Actually, when you look at the uh, uh, fine print of the Treasury numbers, just $2.2 billion of the $4 billion will actually be spent in the four years. So it's allocated for the four years, but they just can't spend it fast enough. And uh, this is uh, a problem because, remember, we have a, an infrastructure deficit that the Infrastructure Commission could, says could be as large as $75 billion. And it's clear from our housing market and from child poverty figures, from all sorts of things, that we really need to spend the money to improve people's well-beings. Uh, obviously, there's a real issue with uh, mental health Um, uh, where we have one of the highest uh, youth suicide rates in the world, particularly Māori and Pacifica. We have real issues with um, obesity, um, real problems with air quality, water quality. Um, We're behind the eight ball on reducing climate emissions. Lots of things need to be done. The government needs to invest in lots of infrastructure. But it's not. And the question is, why not? What's stopping them? Because it's, it's clear when you can borrow um, for 2% or so, you must be able to get a great return on investing in new housing and all of these things. Just imagine, you've got 200,000 kids living in poverty. They're growing up stressed. They might be living in a mouldy, cold house. And they probably have to go to accident and emergency a few times every winter. 
uh, their parents are stressed, there might be mental health issues, uh, they're certainly uh, financially stressed because they're having to pay rent in a private rental. New Zealand has the highest proportion of poor people spending more than 50% of their disposable income on rent, the highest in the OECD. We have the least affordable housing market for buyers and for renters in the entire world. And house prices have risen faster here than anywhere else in the world in the last 20 years. Faster and further into levels relative to income and rent that are the worst in the world. So, uh, what's the government doing about it? Um, are they building lots of houses? Well, they say they are. And uh, Kainga Ora have, um, just in the last three or four years, moved to uh, stop just being a property manager and now being a property builder. So they've got 8,000 houses on the go. But remember, we've got 1.6 million households. And we've got another half a million households coming down the line over the next 30 or 40 years for all sorts of reasons, migration, changing household composition. And uh, there's a great argument to say we should be rebuilding most of those houses and building extra on top to meet our climate change ambitions, to improve affordability and to reduce all these health issues that we see, which are building up as a liability for the future. So why why isn't the government investing this money? The money's there. We know that now. And um, the bond markets are particularly happy with us. Um, we're AAA rated. Our net debt is now forecast to drop to 30% of GDP within the next three or four years. That is um, incredibly low compared to the rest of the world and actually lower uh, than at many points in our history. And, uh, for example, we're, we're going to be 30% within a few years. America is over 100%. Uh, Australia, higher than us. The UK, definitely higher than us. Much higher. Uh, so, um, at the moment, and it's not going to change anytime soon because the amount of debt those countries have taken on is very large. Uh, and there is huge demand to buy government bonds. Uh, um, lots of Older people, richer people, uh, want to put their money into government bonds. And the problem for them is that central banks keep buying, buying them off them. And so they look for bonds anywhere in the world. Some of them are buying junk bonds, corporate bonds, risky bonds. But uh, they would love a good old sovereign bonds, particularly from a country like New Zealand that's growing, which has uh, managed COVID better than anywhere else in the world. If you look at death rates and hospitalisation rates, its economy is growing more than anywhere else in the world, pretty much, in the developed world at least. And uh, we are seeing uh, plenty of demand for our bonds. So it's not a problem to borrow. In fact, um, they'd be quite keen for us to borrow and invest in uh, reducing climate emissions. Call it a green bond, very successful. So why isn't the government doing that? Well, let's wind back in history to 1989. Um, I've probably got a few listeners who were born before then, uh, but I was around, and so were a few other of our listeners. Uh, back in 1989, New Zealand was really on the bones of its bum. It, uh, it had almost gone bankrupt a couple of times. Uh, firstly, in 1984, when the then Prime Minister, Robert Muldoon, um, borrowed an awful lot of money uh, from Europe, in the United States, in Swiss francs and pounds and US dollars. 
actually negotiated the deals himself personally. He used to fly to Zurich. And the deals were always uh, variable interest rate, short-term loans. And remember, New Zealand had a fixed exchange rate back then. That means if interest rates suddenly zip up because the Swiss or the Brits or the Americans don't like the look of us, or there happens to be a big surge in inflation or interest rates generally around the world go up in a hurry, and uh, you have a short-term variable rate loan, that means suddenly you get a phone call from Zurich saying, hey, uh, you know you're going to pay us $100 million to service that loan. Well, next month it's $200 million. And we want US dollars. And I say, your currency's just collapsed, or you've revalued it lower. Uh, well, you know, that means that you're going to have to find five times as much in export receipts to pay the debt and to service the debt. Or we're going we're gonna to send the IMF <laughs> in to tell you what to do. And um, that made everyone very nervous. Uh, in 1984, in fact, uh, when we had that exchange rate crisis linked to our foreign debt, um, the fact that our interest rates on our foreign foreign government debt had risen so much, um, New Zealand was pretty much bankrupt. Uh, there's a legend, I don't know actually whether it's true, but it's one that crops up a lot, that our we were so poor that no one would... Um, buy New Zealand dollars in the foreign exchange markets and our diplomats had to resort to using their credit cards to get foreign currency. Now, sounds too good slash bad to be true, but uh, that's the um, that's the legend. And then again, in 1991, when the Bank of New Zealand was in trouble, at that point it was government-owned, and our economy was in deep shtuck and there was all sorts of uh, ugly things going on, we did have a floating exchange rate then, so that helped soften the blow. But uh, this was when Ruth Richardson was in charge and we were going to be downgraded two notches by Standard & Poor's. She went to New York with the then Treasury Secretary Graham Scott to beg the ratings agency not to downgrade us by two notches. In the end, they only downgraded us by one notch. And um, she, she came back to implement all the benefit cuts to um, cut spending and ensure that we didn't go bankrupt. So this was quite a chastening event in New Zealand's history, at least the 84 crisis and reinforced by the 91 crisis. And both National and Labour at the time um, agreed and passed a law, the Public Finance Act 1989, to essentially put a whole lot more controls on government spending. So we couldn't have some little bugger like Robert Muldoon racing off and borrowing money on a whim or um, being irresponsible. So the Public Finance Act came in and it puts all sorts of very useful standards in place to ensure that uh, money can't be spent willy-nilly and that we don't uh, uh, go around borrowing money all over the place and um, going bankrupt every 10 years. Fair enough. However, uh, things have improved since then. Partly because of the Public Finance Act, um, we now are trusted by the rest of the world's bond investors and ratings agencies, in part because we have kept our debt low. Uh, it got down to 20% or even lower um, just before the global financial crisis, under Labour, by the way. And um, that made us look pretty good. Uh, went up again during the GFC as the government used that strong balance sheet to soften the blow of the GFC and then deal with Christchurch earthquakes. 
And then it was uh, whittled down again uh, when Bill English brought in those zero budgets from 2011 onwards. And Bill English and Stephen Joyce and uh, John Key, to a lesser extent, uh, did their best to not run deficits and essentially repay the debt. Or often it's not so much a matter of repaying the debt. What you do is just hold the debt steady and let the economy grow underneath you. And that improves your debt to GDP ratios. And so by the time uh, Labor got in 2017, um, things were improving. And in fact, Labor got it down well below 20% of GDP, which uh, 20% is uh, its not in legislation, but it's one of those um, things that everyone agrees was the right thing to do. Certainly pre-2008, it seemed perfectly sensible. Um, it was definitely sensible in the early 90s when the bond vigilantes were beating everyone up. But... Now, when there is so much money around the world desperate to go into a government bond, when the New Zealand government borrows in New Zealand dollars and with fixed interest securities, that means if you borrow for 10 years as a government, you agree when you borrow the money that you will pay a certain fixed interest rate every year. So it might be 2% or 3%. And it doesn't matter what happens in that 10 years, let's say. That's all you pay. The interest rate doesn't change. You're set in stone. The risk when interest rates rise is transferred to the lender, i.e. the pension fund manager or the bank who holds on to the government bond. And if they're an overseas pension fund, they're the one that also takes the foreign exchange rate risk. So unlike under Muldoon, when the government was borrowing money for short terms in foreign currency and exposing itself to ructions on international markets or big swings in currencies and interest rates, that is not the case anymore. The New Zealand government has no problem servicing its debt and has no problem because there is now a liquid New Zealand government bond market. And actually a lot of the buyers are in New Zealand. The um, New Zealand Superfund, ACC and a whole bunch of others, the KiwiSaver funds, they buy government bonds, as do many of our banks. So um, we don't have a problem servicing our debt anymore. That 1989 Public Finance Act, which includes clauses to say the government must run surpluses no matter what. It must constantly look to reduce debt. Now, obviously, when there's a crisis, an earthquake or a GFC or, you know, a pandemic, then you are allowed to increase debt. But within a year or two, you have to get it back down again, or at least try to get it back down again, at least stop it from rising. And uh, it's very clear in the Public Finance Act, and that hasn't been changed. And it's uh, part of the underlying promise, I suppose you could say, that the Labour government has made, that it will be prudent with uh, the use of government debt and abide by the Public Finance Act, apart from anything else that doesn't want to break the law. But politically, both it and National essentially have agreed to this 1989 Public Finance Act and haven't looked to change it. There's been a few tweaks here and there. One of the most interesting things is to sprinkle the word well-being throughout it. Have a look at the Act. It was updated in 2020 and also in 2018, to bring in the um, uh, the new child poverty reduction targets, which are an interesting tweak on the Public Finance Act, and that effectively puts some accountability into the Act to try to um, get the government to think a lot more about investing in longer-term well-being issues, because these days. 
people understandably are looking at other ways to measure success, you know, reducing mental health problems, uh, reducing climate emissions, uh, improving water quality. Uh, all of these things sometimes hard to measure, and certainly they are things that are created over very long periods of time or already exist and can be destroyed over periods of time. And also, they're things that can effectively be used in one period, and the costs can appear on someone else's at another period. Best example is nitrate leaching through into the uh, water tables which then go on and according to the latest research may um, increase incidence of bowel cancer and that's obviously nitrates from dairy and other farming that leaches through over decades and the cost of that increase in health problems isn't borne by farmers it's borne by the public so it's a classic case where you can make your accounts and your wealth more now and essentially you're pulling forward wealth from the future you're imposing costs down the line because you're not having to pay it and that's the story of new zealand in the last 30 years we've underinvested in infrastructure we have done all sorts of things which have hurt our environment the water uh, uh, soil quality air quality um, and of course we haven't built enough houses or gotten ready enough for climate change by you know, improving public transport, subsidising buses, um, investing in trains, investing in walking and cycling, all of those things. We haven't done it. There's some interesting reasons why we haven't, but the guts of the problem is we believed, come late 1980s, early 1990s, that we'd invested enough. There'd been way too much think big. All the money had been pumped into concrete and steel. We were sick of it. Um, the Ministry of Works and the government were continually um, tramping on people's rights, building things through their backyards, um, destroying lakes with new dams, all sorts of nasty things. Think big. Industrialization was bad. And big projects, we couldn't do them very well, we thought. And we wanted to stop doing any more of them. And we certainly didn't want to borrow offshore to do it. So we just didn't didn't do it. And anyway, back in the late 90s, late 80s, early 90s, we saw New Zealand as a stable population uh, with not too much growth and an aging population. So why would you need to build lots of new infrastructure and housing when you were, in effect, a flat population? This was, of course, before all the migrants turned up or were encouraged to turn up. And uh, before our, the age of our population actually uh, stopped rising. We do have a little bit of an aging population, but it's not nearly as aging as we thought it would be. And we obviously have an infrastructure deficit, $75 billion as much as, according to the Infrastructure Commission. So we should be investing a, a lot more to repair the... Um, environment and our housing stock effectively invest the money that we didn't invest over the last 30 years in the same way that a company can make itself look good now and give cash to shareholders as dividends instead of investing in repair and maintenance or investing in new plant uh, when you do your accounts uh, that's captured you can see it in the accounts. So let's say, for example, you choose to use surplus cash generated by the business during the year, and instead of using that cash to invest in a new plant or to repair the roof, you just give the cash back to the shareholders in the form of a dividend. Uh, 
Now that's measured in the cash flow accounts and in the profit and loss accounts because there is some depreciation there that would be assumed. But also, uh, when the valuation is done at the end of the year of the value of the buildings, because they haven't been repaired, the value drops. And maybe because the new plant isn't developed, um, the value of the brand drops. And therefore, you can see how people are effectively pulling forward value uh, to now from the future. And everyone can say, right, well, that was a choice we made and that's okay. And that's part of the reason why we built our account system, the Public Finance Act, because we wanted uh, to put some discipline on government. And one way to do it is to apply a set of accounts. So a profit and loss, a cash flow account, and a balance sheet. All good stuff. And uh, that's what we essentially have uh, now in the in the Treasury, which puts out these accounts. There is a, um, we call it the O-Beagle, which is called the Operating Balance for ex Extraordinary Gains and Losses. Essentially, it means um, it's a bit like a profit and loss statement for a, a company. Although, it's interesting that the more you look at it, the more you realise that a company is quite different from a, from a government, which tends to operate on behalf of the entire society and should be seen as the guardian of everyone and everything. Um, and can be used usefully to help a lot of people, as we've seen during COVID. You know, we have one of the highest uh, vaccination rates in the world. That was a collective effort by a government and the people, and very effective. Uh, so government can be useful for things on occasion. And um, it's the idea was to impose some discipline. Well, that's fine. Uh, as long as you can tell when you've decided to pull forward value from the future. So, one way to do that is to make sure that you properly measure your assets and liabilities in the same way that you can tell when the roof hasn't been repaired and so you value the building lower. You can do it with government assets. And in theory, you should also start to measure some of the soft things and try to put some sort of valuation so you can tell what's happened on you know, air quality or mental health or um, the problems with poor housing. And you can start to estimate the liabilities. Um, for example, if you've got 200,000 kids who are poor and who are eventually ending up in prison or um, having mental health issues or needing to have limbs lopped off because they've got diabetes, um, huge costs through the health system, not to mention the lost productivity of all the pain and grief um, involved in growing up uh, in poverty, uh, which, again, is quite hard to measure. But again, when you're not investing in your infrastructure and your people and you're not uh, spending money uh, or making decisions to um, clean up the environment or stop it from getting worse, there are real liabilities down the track. Now, are they being measured? No, they're not. And the best example of that is with climate change. So, of course, New Zealand is behind the game. We should have reduced climate emissions much more than we have so far, and we really need to get a move on. And the reason we do is that we've signed these agreements, which says, you know, we're going to reduce our emissions by... to nothing, apart from anything else, or net zero by 2050. But by 2030, you know, we've got some real commitments, which means we might have to buy carbon credits on the international markets. Now, at the moment, you can't actually do that. 
but it's pretty clear that they are developing and um, so there are some big markets now that operate that allow countries to buy and sell credits to and off each other. So Europe, for example, now there is a significant uh, market there and the um, price of carbon uh, just went over 90 euros a tonne, record high this week. And, uh, you know, you can start to work out uh, how much we might have to spend in carbon credits over the next 20 years or so. And it's a lot of money. <laughs> uh, if you did it properly, if you worked out, let's say the price was $200 a tonne, how much is that going to cost? Tens of billions of dollars? Maybe building a motorway actually makes no sense because you can spend the $10 billion on the motorway, but then you generate $10 billion extra in carbon emissions costs that you have to pay for over the next 20 years and buying credits off someone else. So uh, is the Treasury really starting to measure those liabilities properly so that you don't make short-term decisions and you can see the long-term effects in your balance sheet? Well, turns out it's not. How do we know? Simon Upton, the um, Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment, and for those who are old and grey like me, you might remember that name. Simon was a high-flying youngster in the national government uh, of from 1990 to 96. He, he well remembers the time of Muldoon and uh, was actually the MP that shuffled through the Resource Management Act. And now he's the Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment uh, back, back here after some time overseas. And uh, he's done a review of these new well-being budgets. You might have heard of this phrase, well-being. This is where Treasury and the government say they're taking uh, into account the effects on things like mental health or um, the number of uh, people who are saying they're feeling uh, under stress. These sorts of measures. Um, air quality, those sorts of things. Now, Simon Upton has reviewed all of these well-being budgets and looked at the effects of decisions and looked at other measures of well-being in the environment, which is his main focus, and has come back with a conclusion that, well, these guys talk a good game about well-being, but when you look at their decisions, they haven't actually changed anything. Now, that may be because they don't have the right information on uh, uh, what's happening in the environment. Maybe the research hasn't been done. Maybe the metrics aren't there. Or um, their accounting system and the way that they make cost-benefit analysis decisions isn't right. Well, the, the report's very good in identifying one of the issues is a relatively high social discount rate. Now, uh, before you fall asleep, I should tell you what a social discount rate is and why it's important. So when you make a decision about deciding to spend something, uh, invest some money in an asset or in a process that uh, has costs and benefits over a long period, you want to make sure you don't, you know, it's good value for money. Well, one way to do that is to work out, you know, your returns in terms of um, revenues or improvement and whatever it is you're trying to measure, versus the costs over the period in which that asset's there. Now, if it's a long-term asset, let's say it's a motorway or a bunch of houses or maybe it's a new wind farm, it's going to last 50, 100 years. So in theory, you should take into account all of the collective gains and losses over that period. But because humans have this way of discounting things that are out into the future. It's a bit like, you know, a bird in the hand is worth more than two in the bush. You tend to value now 
a benefit or a cost that's 10, 20, 30 years out into the future at a much lower present value than the number that you're seeing on your spreadsheet for 20, 30 years out. It's a bit like an interest rate. You know, when you lend some money to someone, you expect some sort of return to compensate you for inflation. And in a way, uh, a discount rate is a way in which you do cost-benefit analysis to try and mimic that um, falling realness of costs and benefits going out decades. Now, since 1989, our Treasury has used quite high discount rates, in part because New Zealand's interest rates uh, were high. And the, um, the, the, the measure that's often used is the New Zealand government bond yield, which in effect is the risk-free rate and is probably as good an interest rate as any to try and mimic you know, the, um, the discounts that you should apply over time in any cost-benefit analysis. It's currently 5%. The New Zealand government bond yield, 10-year government bond yield, is 2-point-something percent. It's out of whack. And when you look at our discount rates applied here versus discount rates overseas, ours are about twice as high. Now, you may argue, you may think, well, what does that matter? Well, just uh, imagine that you are uh, thinking about investing in 100,000 houses. And it's going to cost a certain amount of money now, and there'll be benefits over the future, and maybe costs that you might not have. If you apply a discount rate, which is quite high, 5%, 10%, then very quickly uh, the benefits get sliced off by the discount rate to the point where after five, six, seven years, if you've got a relatively high discount rate, you believe that the benefits and the costs out into the future, out beyond that five, seven years or so, are actually worth nothing. That's the thing about discount rates. If you've got a high one, by the time you get 10, 20 years out, that benefit is very low in present value terms. So what that means is that if you're building an asset that lasts 100 years, effectively you're ignoring the benefit that, that it creates from sort of 10, 20 years onwards. It really means that you are systematically, structurally biased against investment in long-term assets that benefit future generations, your kids and your grandkids. Why would you invest in a big, hairy hospital when the benefits just aren't counted in your cost-benefit analysis after 10 years? And lo and behold, for the last 30 years, we didn't build enough hospitals. We chose instead to use the money we had to repay debt. Why would you do that? Well, A, it's in the Public Finance Act, and as we learned, um, debt's a bad thing, particularly public debt, when Robert Muldoon gets his hands on it. Well, Robert Muldoon is dead. And we borrow in our own currency at fixed interest rates. This is not the same concern. We've built up a massive infrastructure deficit and effectively engineered a wealth transfer from future generations to generations now and generations now that own assets. And the best expression of that is through interest rates. Now, one of the reasons that house prices and all sorts of assets other assets around the world are much higher now, is because interest rates have fallen. And uh, when you get the benefits of low interest rates in the form of high house prices, you don't want to give them up. And if interest rates rose, that could put some downward pressure on house prices. So when you're in the government and you say, what's the most important thing that I need to achieve? One of them 
is stopping interest rates from rising. In fact, that's one of the arguments against government spending, is that you're sucking capital away from other private investors and putting up interest rates. So in effect, by choosing to repay debt early or not borrow, the government is choosing slightly lower than would otherwise be the case interest rates, because that keeps asset prices up. So this week, the government was given some good fortune in the form of better forecasts for government revenues, and effectively chose to repay debt or not to borrow instead of using that money to invest in future generations. One of the reasons is that we have this very high social discount rate, which uh, Simon Upton has suggested we look again at and per perhaps use a lower one. For example, um, the Stern report on climate change out of Britain used a 1.4% discount rate when it was doing its analysis on the effects of climate change. And that meant that you took those long-term effects much more seriously in your calculations. And uh, you would certainly have a different series of decisions about government spending and investment if you used a much lower discount rate, which I think we should. The other thing, which I found interesting in this week's half-yearly economic and fiscal update and budget policy statement, and the latest reiteration of the Debt Management Office's borrowing program, which comes out of Treasury, so this is where I put my debt market geek hat on, is that uh, the borrowing program that the government announced in May has now been cut by $41 billion over the next four years, including a halving of the borrowing expected in the next year, which is pretty chunky. How did that happen? Well, obviously, you know, there's more revenue, tax revenue coming in, so we don't have to borrow so much. That's good. But just quietly, it turned out the government had a $40 billion plus sum of money sitting in a bank account. Now, it was the Reserve Bank's bank account, it was the Crown Settlement account, but it meant that the government effectively over the last 18 months borrowed enormous amounts of money, but didn't spend it. They put it in the bank. Now, one of the reasons they did that is because I'm a little bit nervous that you know, if COVID got completely out of control, the financial markets could seize up and it might not be so easy to get hold of that cash when, when it was needed. So this stockpile built up, and at various points got to $50 billion, according to the Debt Management Office. Well, now things have settled down a bit. The DMO has announced that they're going to just work that uh, cash balance down. Think of it a bit like, you know, in a crisis, global financial crisis, COVID, you run down to the ATM machine, you pull out $10,000 cash, and you put it in a uh, locked box uh, at the back of the cupboard, thinking, well, I might need that if the FPOS machines go down. But after a year or two and the FPOS machines haven't gone down, you think, oh, well, maybe I should put that back in the bank. And that's effectively what the DMO is thinking of doing, is of running down that cash account from about 40, 45 billion now to about 15 billion in the long run. Now, that's more than it was pre-COVID. It was around about 5 billion pre-COVID. And you could argue maybe that was a bit low. And other governments tend to have a cash buffer of around about... 3% of GDP or so. So um, the DMO said, right, we're going to get it down to about $15 billion. Uh, So that means you go down from $40 billion to $15 billion. So not only did we get this windfall, um, depending on how you look at it, of about $40, $45 billion from a stronger economy, we also, just quietly, had $20 billion or so spare in a bank account, 
which we could have used. So unders and overs, we had about $50 billion land in our laps this week. And the government just quietly chose to give it back to the bond markets with the aim of keeping interest rates low. Now, is that a good idea in the long run? Certainly it's good for asset prices now. But what about our climate and housing emergencies? Why aren't we investing to try and solve those issues and build up long-term well-being? Why aren't we essentially repairing the roof? Why aren't we investing in our futures properly, with the proper amount of money? I asked um, Grant Robertson this. He said, well, I have to strike a balance. And what he's really saying is I have to take into account the interests of asset owners. And remember, most voters are asset owners. They own a home. And they certainly vote at higher rates than renters. And those asset owners do not want their house price to fall and they do not want interest rates to rise. If you're a renter, well, you don't vote as much. There aren't quite as many as you of you as there are of homeowners. And the median voter is the one the government really cares about. So today the government expressed its preferences and complied with the Public Finance Act by choosing lower interest rates over investing in reducing child poverty, addressing climate change, and dealing with a housing affordability emergency. And the reason it could do all those things is because the Treasury doesn't calculate the long-term liabilities of these decisions properly and doesn't use a proper discount rate when making decisions or giving advice to ministers about how to do all these things. Meantime, there are people living in vans. There are people having limbs lopped off. And there are kids really struggling. And the government is choosing to have interest rates a little bit lower than would otherwise be the case. And how do we know that that happened? Well, immediately after the HIFU was announced yesterday, and it was a bit of a surprise that the government had chosen to reduce its borrowing program by $41 billion. What happened? Well, the five-year government bond yield fell 15 basis points to 2.25%. Now, what does that mean? Well, it might mean possibly a slightly lower five-year mortgage rate at some point, or maybe not having the increase that we were expecting a little bit. That's the story at the end of the day. The government has just received a $50 billion windfall from the economy, had $20 billion cash spare in the bank and chose to give it all back to keep interest rates low and to keep house prices high. That's the story of this week. It's an intergenerational crime scene in that lockup, watching those accounts come through. Uh, one where the murder weapon wasn't very clear to see, but is there. And the act itself was administered in a very friendly way. In fact, most of the audience cheered. I'm Bernard Hickey. That was my daily podcast on Thursday the 16th of December. Late, I'm afraid, but I was having such a good time digging into this I decided to do it properly thank you to all of my subscribers who allow me to, to do this and 
pass this on to your mates. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka.